Well, good morning. Good to have you joining us here online uh, for the bridge service here at First Free Methodist Church. Our church uh, just last week got something in the mail, and I opened it up, and uh, here's what we got in the mail. If I don't know if you can read. This is the front of the booklet. It says, the end is here. And I wondered if someone, I don't know who sent it, but if someone heard we were going through the book of Revelation uh, this summer, but I, I didn't read through it all. I did skim through it and was reading on the back of it and wanted to share some of the things on the back of it because it's important that you know, and I'm, I'm saying this a little sarcastically, but it says the end is here. God's day of rest is going to be April of 2033 AD. So that's predicting um, the actual time, the end time. Some of the, the numbers called, there's a lot, what I noticed about this, this booklet is there are a lot of numbers and calculations in here and uh, it points out that there are 7.6, 7.76 billion people in the world. And according to this, only 101 million of those billions will be in heaven. Uh, I don't know, I, 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 that number comes from a calculation in Revelation 5.10, and uh, you can go look at that if you want to. And then the question, it says, well, what's going to happen to the, the rest of the 7.65 billion forgiven, but carnal church people plus all the remaining heathen people during the tribulation. So I took this number, 1.101 million, and I looked up uh, how many Christians, professing Christians, there are in the world today, right now, 2.2 billion. And that comes out roughly to less than 5% of the profession Christians today. It doesn't take into account all the Christians that lived before us and the Christians that will live after us, the next generations. And so I thought about this. And so part of what this person's trying to do is count, right? Saying who's going to make it in and who's not going to make it in. And this count is, uh, seems to be very important. These numbers seem to be very important. And this is something we're going to learn a little bit more about here as we study chapter 6. We heard chapter 6. I'm going to also take us a little bit into chapter 7 today. My question, though, to you and for us today as we start out is this question of um, what is your reaction when someone tells you the end is near? What is your reaction when someone tells you the end is near? If you'd like to go ahead and chat on that, you can put it in the chat bar uh, what you're thinking about that. I may try and come back around to that towards the end if you do put something in there. So just a quick question for you to think about as we get started, because we're going to learn that, again, the book of Revelation is not a crystal ball of the future and who's going to get in and who's not going to get in. We'll actually learn a little bit about some of these numbers here this morning. So as we jump in, I do want to kind of set, I want to set the context. I want us to be able to see the context of what's happening in Revelation. We've been in the throne room of God. We're still in this vision of the throne room of God with John. Jesus is given to John. And here in chapter 6, we see the scroll and the seals are being broken. The, the lamb who was slain is able to break the seals of the scroll. So if you remember, we have a scroll, seven seals, and chapter 6 is the breaking of six of the seven seals. We actually don't get to the seventh seal. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that, why, why that happens. But today I want to lay this out because we have seven, what we're calling three scenes of seven over the next 10 chapters of Revelation. So I want to set this up for the next few weeks. So three, think about this, three scenes of seven, or seven, 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 versus six, 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 which is another number we'll learn about later uh, in the series. But here we see three scenes of seven. There's seven seals, that's where we're at today. 
Then we're going to see seven angels with trumpets and seven angels with bowls. So seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. We're going to see this unfolding in the book of Revelation. The reason this is important is because I want us to understand, at least what I've learned this week, is that this are, these are not sequential. These run parallel to each other. Uh, so these things are parallel, and uh, they're parallel events, all culminating in what's called final judgment or the day of the Lord, which we see after the sixth seal. So each of these series of seven events are all pointing us in the same direction. We actually see this uh, in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, or the Old Testament prophets. Uh, Zechariah talked about four horses, different colored horses. We heard about that today. Four horns and four carpenters. But all four scenes, or all four Scenes run parallel to each other and reveal the restoration of Jerusalem. Again, John is using the same type of style of writing, prophetic writing, to reveal what God is doing in the world. And John's going to describe it through seven seals and then describe it through seven trumpets and then describe it through seven bowls. Today, we're going to jump into the first of those scenes, which is the seals, the seven seals. And I'm not talking about the kind of animals that eat fish. All right, bad, bad, bad dad joke, sorry. All right, so here are the seals. So we have today uh, the first four seals. The first seal was broken, and it's the white horse of conquest. Then the second seal is broken, and we have a red horse of war. Third seal is broken, we have a black horse of famine. Keep in mind that colors are symbolic as well. And then the fourth seal is the pale horse of death. Now, it's possible there was a fifth horse here, Um, But it doesn't line up with the numbers because Hades, it says, follows along behind death. And so we've got these four seals, which have been known in popular uh, thought as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so we have this in these four seals. We'll see the four horsemen again later uh, when we get to the trumpets as well. But here we see that what's going on here is really that these four go together. And these these are how they go together. A nation like Rome bent on conquest, will go to war. So we have the, the, the horse of conquest followed by the horse of war. Whenever a nation wants to conquer another tribe or nation or language or people, then it will go after that group and it will conquer them and it will use military power to do so. So conquest followed by war. The consequences of war, though, are often in the first century and throughout human history is famine. That's the next horse. And so a lot of times, because of war, it disrupts agriculture, it disrupts food supply, and so the prices in food go up, and that's what we see under that third seal or the third horse. And so famine follows, and then what follows famine? Death. People starve to death. So it's not only about the killing of war, but the consequences of war. And this is something that people in the first century, and even today, us today, can see that this is part of what happens whenever a nation is bent on conquering another group of people. Conquests, war, famine, death, and Hades. So these four, th- horse, four horsemen or horse people go together, right? These all go together. And now here's where we get to where some interpreters take this, and this is why this is easy picking for predicting and using Revelation as kind of a crystal ball. Because you could take those four seals, those four things, 
and apply it to any point in human history, any war in human history, past or present. And you could say, hey, see, this, the end is near. See what's happening? And I see a lot of uh, interpreters doing that. They're saying, hey, this is what's happening in our world today. Iraq, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan. Because any war is going to lead to these things. And it's easy to point those things out and to say the end is near. The problem with that is that Jesus taught us not to do that. Matthew 24 Jesus said, you're going to hear about wars and rumors of war. This is something that you all, everyone experiences. But don't be alarmed. That's what Jesus said. Don't be alarmed because there's still more time. And so John is basically using this imagery to explain what's happening in the world. And it's going to raise some questions for us as well. But let's move on. The fifth seal is the cry of the martyrs. Notice that the scene shifts from the horses being released of the seals to the cry of the martyrs under the altar. Now, notice that the cry is coming from under the altar. That's important. That's significant. Again, what John is doing is using some imagery from the temple because when the priests would make sacrifice in the temple, they would pour the blood of the sacrifice under the altar, right? And so what's happening here in this image is John is saying the cry of the martyr, the blood of the martyrs is crying out from under the altar. And what are they crying? They're saying, how long? How long do we have to endure this? How long does this have to continue? This war, this famine, this death. And I would say that's something that you and I can relate to too. Isn't that a question we're asking today? How long do we have to be in quarantine? How long till we go back to school? How long do I have to work at home? How long before I can get back together with other people? How long can I, until I can go on vacation? All these questions that we're asking as well. And so the martyrs are asking how long. Unfortunately, the news for them is not good. They get white robes and they get to be with the slain lamb and they incorporate it there. But the bad news is, is that there are still more martyrs to come. God is still at work. God is still up to something, and they have to wait. And so the prayer is not answered with, we're done, but be faithful, endure, hold, stay the course. That's the message that John is also wanting to give people in the first century, is like, endure, persevere, be faithful in the midst of a conquering nation bent on conquest like Rome and persecuting the Christian church. So this cry is very important uh, to the first century Christians and even important to us today. So we keep this in mind as well. So then we get to the sixth seal. And the sixth seal is what we would call the day of the Lord. This is the final judgment. This is a total annihilation of the earth and the stars and the sun and the universe. Notice that here we are in chapter 6, and we've got several more chapters to go, but we're already seeing final judgment and the end of the world because this is just one scene of three scenes because we're going to keep seeing this repeated, a pattern that John is using throughout the book of Revelation. And so here's what, that's what's happening here is this total annihilation and destruction of the world but we're not done with Revelation, so how could we be at the end already? Well, John's using this pattern again to reveal something. Here's something else that John points out here. Notice that the kings, the rulers of nations, the rich, the uh, military leaders, the generals, what are they doing in response to God's judgment? What, is, what, what are they doing? They're hiding. They're hiding from God. And see, that's what we as humans do whenever we're faced with a crisis or judgment is we either repent or we hide. And the point here in John's text is that these rulers 
are not repenting. They're running away from God, like the prodigal son, like Jonah from God's call to Nineveh. They are running away and hiding, right? Rather than repenting and turning their lives to God, turning their lives to the way of the lamb, the slain lamb, who wields power differently. And so this is actually judgment on them, and so they're hiding from God. And this is important for us to understand as well. So that's what's happening. This actually happened in Hosea as well. The prophet Hosea is that they would not repent. The rulers would not repent. They ran and they hid from God. And so that's what we're seeing. Now that's chapter six. Pretty, pretty dark stuff happening in chapter six. And then notice if we kept reading and we're in chapter seven. In fact, if you've got your Bible open with you right now, you can kind of go into chapter seven. We just covered chapter six. I'm going to shift to chapter 7. What we see is there's no seventh seal in chapter 7. You, that would be great, wouldn't it? The seventh chapter, seventh seal. But what we find in chapter 7 is an interlude. An interlude. Like, we're not going to get to the seventh seal until the next chapter. So what's John doing with this whole chapter in Revelation? Here's what I think John or Jesus is doing through John. This is what's happening in the text. This is what's happening. So, what John is doing is giving people hope and a vision of the future, a vision of heaven in the midst of all this stress and uncertainty and uh, having to endure a very difficult season of their lives. So they're in difficulty, John's saying endure. And what do you and I need to endure? What do you and I need when we're, we're struggling to persevere? What we need to know is there's hope. We need to know there's, in a sense, light at the end of the tunnel. We need a vision of what it's going to look like to cross the finish line. We need a vision of the future. And that's exactly what John gives the first century Christians is a vision and a hope of the future that will instill in them a desire and a motivation and energy and restoration to keep enduring in difficult circumstances. And the vision they get is a vision of heaven. And you'll notice in chapter 7, if you've opened your Bibles at this point, you'll see that the first thing that we see in chapter 7 is this idea of 144,000 sealed. Now, again, some people have taken this literally, this number literally, and said, hey, look, only 144,000 people are going to make it into heaven. And they stop there and they read that literally. In fact, uh, you may have had a conversation with a Jehovah's Witnesses and they bring a Watchtower magazine. And part of the teaching of the Jehovah's Witness Church is that there's this special group of 144,000 that make it in. And when I've had conversation, and if you've had conversation, one of the questions I ask, well, what about everybody else? And what about the rest of chapter 7? What about the multitude? And so they take that literally, but then they shift immediately to figurative language later in Revelation. So interesting, if you ever have that discussion, uh, maybe raise that question with them about that 144,000. But again, if we take numbers as symbolic in Revelation, then we see these are symbolic numbers. And the number 12 is the sim- a symbol of fullness, and particularly here that the, the whole nation of Israel is going to be in heaven. The, the 12 tribes, so 12 or multiples of 12, are symbolic, is a symbolic number of the nation of Israel and the fullness of God's people. So the 12 tribes are sealed, and sealed in heaven in the throne room of God. So we see that at the beginning of chapter 7. And so keep that in mind as well. The other thing, if we keep reading in chapter 7, is we'll notice, I want you, want us to notice something that happens here. 
And I want you to pay attention to the language here as we're talking about numbers. And it's this passage in uh, chapter 7, verse, starting in verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Got that? No one could count. You can't put a number on it. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I love this image. Do you love this image of Revelation here? We see here in this image is that John is giving us a vision of heaven. And there's a multitude, here the point is, no one can count. Not 101 million, not 144,000. We don't know the number. In fact, I don't think it's our job to figure that out. It's not our job to do the math. That's God's job to do the math. We're not supposed to be doing that kind of math. What John is, though, is inspiring us and hopefully calling us to endure and be faithful to the vision that God has for heaven, which is what? Not one nation, not one tribe, not one language, but everyone. Everyone who is actually in this case, everyone who's gone through and endured and been faithful witnesses arrive in heaven with God in this great multitude in white robes. And so that's the vision that God is give, uh, that John, Jesus is giving the people of John's day. He's saying, endure. Don't lose hope because here's what we're working towards. Here's where God is taking us. And we need to see the finish line when it's hard to endure today. And maybe you're in that place today. Maybe we're in that place today of trying to endure, asking how long, oh God, is this going to go, right? And it could be anything going on in your life right now. So keep that in mind. You know, and so what John is saying is that this is the vision we're to be working towards as a people of God. So we pray together uh, often here at our church uh, the Lord's Prayer, and we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. And what we're praying is that this vision that God has for heaven would be on earth, right? That's our prayer. And I pray, I would encourage us to keep praying that prayer. And that's the name of this series, As It Is In Heaven. We want to be a people. We want to be a community that is praying this prayer, that this vision of heaven would become reality for us on earth. And we work towards that. And we endure and become faithful witnesses, offering people this vision of heaven and this type of a kingdom in the midst of everything else going on in our world. You know, uh, you, uh, history, I don't know a lot about history. Uh, for some parts of history, I know we may know some parts better than others. But Genghis Khan, you may have heard the name Genghis Khan, uh, was a brutal tyrant and a conqueror and established the Mongolian Empire. And so uh, one of the people that interacted with Genghis Khan was another historical figure, explorer named Marco Polo. The first time, uh, to be honest with you, the first time I ever heard of Marco Polo was in the swimming pool uh, uh, when I was a kid. You know, Marco Polo, that's what I thought Marco Polo was until I later learned this is a historical uh, figure. And it was during the around the 12th century uh, that Genghis Khan and Marco Polo uh, knew each other. And Marco Polo was in, uh, met Genghis Khan, a new Genghis Khan, and represented Rome and the, and the church in some ways uh, to Genghis Khan. So one day, Genghis Khan made a request 
through Marco Polo to go back to Rome, to go back to the church. And this is what Genghis Khan asked Marco Polo to, to relay to the Pope. And the message was, will you send a hundred teachers of the Christian faith to come to, to the Mongolian Empire and show us the way of Christ? Would you come and teach us the way of Christ and show us how the way of Christ is best? Because uh, one of the things, for all the terrible things that Genghis Khan did, it turns out that he was very religiously tolerant and open to learning about other religions and other faiths. And so he made this request, and Marco Polo immediately seized upon this request and rushed off to Rome because he thought this was a great opportunity uh, to learn about the Christian faith for Genghis Khan and the Mongolian Empire. So the request was made to the Pope, and uh, so this was a great opportunity. And I think about this opportunity uh, maybe as a missed opportunity for the church because what happened as a result is two years later, the Pope sent two teachers, and the offer to Genghis Khan was this. Make a religious and political alignment with Rome. Make, a, make an alignment with us politically and ecclesiastically, with the church and with the Roman government. It was not an offer to learn the way of Christ. And I think about that as a missed opportunity. Do you think about that as a missed opportunity? This, this was a part of humanity. What difference would it have made had the response been different. Because see, what John is offering the first century Christians, and I think what the scripture in Revelation offers us today, is this. Not a political affiliation, not a church membership, but a kingdom and the way of Christ. And it offers us that, and what John is saying is stick to the kingdom of God, put the, seek the kingdom of God and the way of Christ in your life. Put that first in your life above all other things. That's the message a revelation. And so that's part of what is happening. And the other thing is, is if you're trying to endure, you also need to know something else, right? That there is a better future, right? And actually, that's what uh, John goes on to say in chapter 7. John says this, that the lamb, he says, the lamb will become the center of their lives. And it says, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst, the sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What John is saying, and I think is very important for us even today as we're trying to endure different things, John is saying, guess what? You're going to, when you put Christ, when you offer Christ and put Christ at the center of our, of our lives, when we do that, we don't have to worry about where the bread of life is coming, where the living water is coming from. In fact, if you've, have you ever been on a hike in the mountains here recently? Like, have you ever tried Mailbox Peak or Pilchuck or one of those really hard, or maybe you've even made it out to Big Sai, and you say, wow, this is a really hard hike. Can you imagine doing that hike without water or without food? without some kind of refreshment, without some kind of renewal along the way. See, that's part of it, is to endure, you and I need water. We need sustenance in the journey. And these first century Christians were trying to endure. They were trying to be faithful. And John was saying, Christ is your living water. Christ is the bread of life. Hold on. Make Christ the center of your life. And it's interesting because the people that make it here to this scene in Revelations are the ones who endure through tribulation, who endure through difficulty, who endure and persevere in the midst of a tough journey, right? That's what they're going through. 
And that may be what you're going through as well, that I am going through, we're going through, is this tough journey together. The question is, is Christ our sustenance? Is, is Christ our living water? Is Christ the bread of life that sustains us even for us to endure and to keep moving on, keep persevering? So my question, our question for the church today is this. Will you endure and be faithful to the Lamb? Will you endure and be faithful to the Lamb? I think this is an important question for us today to say, will we endure? Will we be faithful to Christ? Will we offer people the kingdom of God, not a religious affiliation or membership or political alignment, but will we offer the kingdom and offer Christ to others? Will we be those people who are, when we're on a journey with other pilgrims, you know, offering fresh water? You know, if you're hiking up Mailbox Peak and you don't have any water and someone hands you a fresh bottle of water, you're probably going to take it. That's our role in this journey is to be the people offer grace and offer water and offer sustenance to other journey, other pilgrims along the way. And I think that's really what people are asking for. They're asking for hope. They're asking for sustenance. They're asking for something that will give them strength when it's hard to endure and persevere. I wanted to share uh, one graph with you uh, today. Actually, uh, came to uh, someone, uh, our superintendent, Michael Forney, shared this with the pastors. Uh, we've shared it with our leadership team and our staff here at the church. And I just want you to take a look at this We're n- and just kind of help orient you to it. But this is a graph that shows an emotional response to crisis. So you'll notice that when a crisis happens, a life event happens, it could be you know the loss of a loved one, a health crisis, could be uh, quarantine, could be societal unrest, could be whatever crisis it is. Notice that people react in two different ways. Sometimes people jump in and try and help in the crisis and they go on this roller coaster of excitement and reaction. What do we do and how do we make this better? And then other people retreat and they go into numbness and disbelief and, and kind of denial and they minimize what's going on. And we can see that even in our own day, uh, different people's responses to the crisis uh, of our day. And so notice that both these lines diverge, but over time, even the people who got really excited at the beginning be, go into this honeymoon phase, and then they begin to experience uncertainty, losing confidence, confusion. And then notice that both pe- pilgrims, both journeys, paths, come together in depression and lead to crisis. Now I want to stop there, and also uh, let's take a look at the bottom line there, the life event. Notice the number of months until the crisis point happens. The emotional reaction, the emotional crisis happens in us, and it's at month six. Now, if we apply this to the COVID-19 quarantine, month six for us will be around August, and so we have to keep this in mind. But in Revelation, right, Revelation is the same thing going on. The four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are coming. There's a crisis, and there's uh, the cry of the martyrs crying out. And then the crisis is the day of the Lord, the judgment of God, right, in Revelation. Same kind of pattern here. So, but in the crisis, notice that at the point of crisis, there are several paths that could emerge from the crisis. One is quit, give up, don't endure, don't persevere, just quit. And that's what John is saying to the first century Christians is don't give up, right? Notice that for some, some choose a path of, of just continuing to extend the crisis, right? Just continuing to live with it and there's no real change and they could also quit future down the road. Notice there's another group that breaks off and they begin to accept and let go and, and accept the new reality and there's some partial recovery, But notice the trajectory for the other group. The last trajectory is accepting, exploring, testing, 
and transformation, right? And here's the same message in John, right? That transformation happens in you and us and, in, and even in others when at that point of crisis or judgment, we repent. Notice that the leaders hide. <laughs> what do they do? They hide. But what John is calling the nations and all people is to repentance, to be a part of the multitude in heaven and offering that opportunity of transformation. And as Christians, we're offered this opportunity of transformation in Christ, right? And so we have choices that we'll, we can make about how we respond to the crisis, how we're going to emotionally respond to the crisis. And John, for the first century Christians, their crisis was persecution. People were dying for their faith. And so this message of endurance was vitally important. And this message of hope was vitally important. And that's the message that we hope for you today. That you will follow the kingdom. That you will seek the kingdom and follow the way of Christ, the slain lamb, in your life, in my life, in our lives together. So think about this. You know, I know over the past few weeks, uh, we've been hitting on some topics sensitive going on in current events, current culture. Over the past few weeks, we've, we've talked about these in sermons and messages. And not everybody's in agreement. Let's, let's just be honest. Not everybody agrees when we hit on these current events and how things are happening. And our hope is, and my hope is, is that whatever it is, it's not about agreeing or disagreeing. It's about seeing each other on a journey, <laughs> seeing each other as fellow pilgrims. And what are we offering each other? Are we offering living water to those who are tired and weary? Are we offering the bread of life to those who are tired and weary and trying to endure or not? And our hope is that you experience the living water of Christ and of the kingdom of God, and that we will be offering grace to one another on the journey, offering Christ and encouragement to one another on the journey. You know, because all of us are going to be in heaven one day, and everything that's happening right now, when we get there in that moment, will be awfully trivial. In fact, we'll look back on this moment, and we'll maybe even say, what were we thinking? What were we doing? It's so much better in God's presence. Let's pray together.